0: Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but it's composed by people. And each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it. And Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code because crypto is people all the way down and always has been. Today, I'm speaking with Tim Bako. Tim Bako has a similar timeline with getting into crypto as I did. Got into the top of the 2017 markets and then found his way into what niche fits him best. Started working as a client project lead at Consensus, project manager, and then eventually he hand raised and used his position working on the Basu client to really focus on EIP-1559. And Tim raising his hand to take that effort on EIP-1559 led him into the role of being the all core devs coordinator. So this podcast is really a lesson in the dynamics of what it means to make upgrades to Ethereum and very, very true to what I think layer zero is all about is like, What code and who is proposing this code that ultimately becomes part of Ethereum really needs to be considered because the code dictates how people's lives will look. What Ethereum is will impact the people that use it. And Tim Bako is at the heart of what changes make their way into Ethereum and what changes do not. And so this is a fantastic podcast to answer the question, are there just centralized actors that can upgrade the code? Can Vitalik just get whatever he wants into code and upgrade Ethereum as he sees fits? We've talked about these subjects directly. And then also talk about some overarching decisions and problems that, you know, will inevitably be part of Ethereum's future and, and what we can do to solve those problems now. Also, this is just a, a lesson in client diversity and client development. And so just a very informative podcast. So let's go ahead and get right into this Layer Zero with Tim Bako. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors, that make the show possible. The Aave Protocol is a decentralized liquidity protocol on Ethereum, which allows users to supply and borrow certain crypto assets. Aave version two has a ton of cool features that makes using the Aave Protocol even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield and composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can supply to the protocol in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have supplied collateral. Here you can see me borrowing 200 USDC against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock in that interest rate in permanently. V2 also features the ability for users to swap collateral without having to withdraw their assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. With Aave, users can do this in one seamless transaction, saving you time and gas costs. Check out the power of Aave at That's aave.com. That's A-A-V-E E.com. Living a bankless life requires taking control over your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite DeFi apps all in one spot, Ledger Live is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy your crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into all of the DeFi apps and services that you're used to. Using Ledger Live, you can stake your ETH and Lido, swap on DEXs like Paraswap, or display your NFTs with Rainbow. You can also use Wallet Connect inside of Ledger Live to connect to all the other DeFi apps that keep coming online. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all of the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, download Ledger Live and get all of your DeFi apps all in one place. Hey, Tim, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good, my man. Pretty good. Uh, still in Seattle, about to head into a plane to get back to San Diego from the holidays. Where are you at? I'm in Vancouver and was just in San Diego yesterday to celebrate Thanksgiving with some friends. Oh, bummer. We missed each other. <laughs> I'm up north and yeah. you went down south and I was down south and you went up north. I see you, you have one of those <laughs> yeah. uh, cool NFT things. I, I can't remember what the name of that NFT project is in your background, um, but I, re- I remember looking at that. Uh-
1: yeah, I think they're called Crypto Trees. So I bought it. I didn't mint it. Uh, I'm still looking for a good NFT backgrounds. if people have suggestions. Um, yeah, <laughs> oh, this one is, you're going flooded is, with suggestions. <laughs> yeah, this one is like decent, but I don't know. I, I'm not like 100% in love with it either,
0: so. Yeah, I feel like that's how NFTs go, is like you never actually feel completely in love with them, so you always have to keep on searching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Tim, let's go all the way back. For those that don't know, Tim is one of the lead efforts coordinating the ETH1, uh, so I don't think we call it ETH1 anymore, but also largely the EIP1559 efforts. But let's go even further back. When was your moment that you first heard about Ethereum?
1: Right. Um, A friend of mine told me about it, and I ignored it the first time. Um, That was a mistake. Uh, Second time I heard about it was in the context of the DAO, uh, but when the DAO was a fundraising project Mm -hmm. and not a hack um and uh that seemed interesting and i actually bought my first eth to contribute to the dow i bought the absolute top uh i think like uh my buy went through on coinbase there's always like a couple days like literally the day before the hack uh happened um yeah, so that was my introduction to Ethereum, was the DAO getting hacked. I feel
0: like this is a, a, a great exemplar story. Like your friend tells you about Ethereum, you ignore it, and then you buy the top. <laughs> These are how, This is how yeah, people exactly. get into, into crypto. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. What kind of experience, what was your, your work life, your career trajectory before crypto?
1: Right. Um, so I, I, I kind of started out more on the business side. I always started a bunch of projects. Um, when I was in, in high school, I had an online t-shirt company. Uh, Shopify, I don't think existed back then, but you today that would be like a Shopify store. Um, then I actually, I managed a painting company for like three years, uh, like actual painting of houses. Um, I realized that doesn't scale really well. So there's like really diminishing returns to scale, uh, with, like physically painting things, got interested into tech because it seemed like something you could like scale easier. Um, and uh, instead of going to college, a friend and I figured out uh, why not try and start a tech company. So we spent a year trying to start a startup. Uh, didn't work out. Uh, the idea was to try and uh, basically Airbnb for your luggage space. Um, so, if say you're living in Bali and you want something from uh, France, uh, we would like match you with somebody coming your way, uh, and then you could pay them to bring uh, whatever you want. Um, and that, that was also like a horrible tech idea because that also doesn't scale really well. Um, <laughs> but learned a lot about you know technology and um, also realized how little I knew. I kind of taught myself to code a little bit while we were doing that. And uh, when the startup didn't work out, I went back to school to do computer science instead of business. Um, and basically did that, um, and then yeah, after that uh, worked as a product manager and uh, kind of kept doing that. It felt like a nice intersection of like being involved in the engineering side, but also not like just
0: writing code. So you always have had an entrepreneurial spirit inside of you. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Did did I extend even earlier than that? Or is that kind of like the early stories? I
1: think the t-shirt business was the first thing. Um, And it was interesting because I I was like, I don't know, 16 years old at the time or 15 years old. And it was Uh, just like so hard to do everything from like getting your PayPal account, right? Because you're not 18. uh, You know, getting like set up on, I forget what what I use for a storefront, but like the equivalent of Shopify. Like all those things are quite hard if you're
0: not 18 Mm -hmm. 18 years old. Um, Yeah. Was it the pursuit of capital or the spirit of building something like what really resonated with you about it
1: yeah so definitely the building more um capital was nice in that it was mostly like unconstrained right Mm -hmm. like when you work a job it's like you know you can work more hours or find like a you know slightly better paying job especially when you're like 16 years old your options are are quite limited um and so uh yeah like i guess working on something that's like self-directed but also like you know if things work out you do get like a, a higher payoff
0: um yeah i think those two things were, were really the the gist of it and then what made you decide computer science when you went back to was it, was it was that that was in your undergrad was it yeah undergrad um undergrad i guess
1: trying to code i liked it i realized how little i knew um and like how flaky everything i was writing was doing so you know, there's a lot of, like, debates about how, like, useful it is to understand, like, the theory behind, like, computer science versus, like, just doing, like, say, a coding boot camp. Um, and I think I'm, I'm very glad I kind of started with, like, the boot camp approach and, and actually, you know, got to building things really quickly. Um, But after that, you kind of just realize how little you know. Uh So then going back and, and looking to theory, and I spent a lot of time in undergrad also uh, doing AI, and that was really interesting to learn. Um So, yeah, I, I you know. I I enjoyed kind of getting just a better understanding overall of like
0: how these things work behind the scenes. So after you graduated with a degree in computer science, and then you had some experience, you know, building, being an entrepreneur, where did you think you were going to take that?
1: Yeah. So one thing I realized when my company didn't work out is I didn't want to start another company unless I knew I was like the best person in the world to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was just something like meeting, like as I had my startup, I got to meet a, a bunch of other founders and... To me that seemed like one of the really not necessarily like necessary things for companies to work but like it it, it greatly improves your odd if you feel you're like in the top you know one or 0.1 percent of people that can actually tackle this problem um so i'm you know i was and still i'm kind of fine you know not starting a company for its sake but waiting until there's something where i'm like well nobody else can kind of do this better than I can, right? Or, you know, mo- the vast majority of people can't do that. Um, and so, yeah, I and, and I also realized uh, while, while I was kind of running my company, you know, we were like a startup of three, um, that I didn't have like a good feel for like, What does like a successful 10 person company look like? What does like a successful 50, 200, you know, 10,000 person look like? Uh, so during my, my, my undergrad, I tried to intern at like a bunch of different sized companies to like get a feel for like, you know, what do they look like? Um, and then after my undergrad, I I basically went to like a, a mid stage startup for a year, uh, working on AI. Um, and that was, I think, Late 2017, early 2018, by that point, I had been kind of following Ethereum again, like pretty much. Um, But there's not a lot of jobs on Ethereum if you're not an engineer. Um, So an AI kind of felt like a a better kind of career path. Uh, So, you know, I worked in AI, kind of followed Ethereum on nights and weekends. um, And at some point just started searching for a job full time in this space. I got just really bored of it after like eight months. Um, And so I was looking at
0: uh, any Ethereum job I could find. Yeah. What was the process of like work Ethereum balance for you before you got your job in Ethereum? Yeah, right. Tell me about that.
1: <laughs> so if I had to describe it quickly, it's like booking your conference room for yourself and like reading the beige paper, you know, <laughs> like you're doing crypto zombies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would try to like, if I wasn't too busy at work, you know, take time there to like, you know, study or read up on interesting things. Um, spent a bunch of time on the Ethereum subreddit. Um, the, the quality there was 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 quite high. Um, and I didn't actually go to like Ethereum meetups. Like there weren't a lot of them in Montreal. Um, But I managed to get my AI company to pay to send me to a blockchain conference in Austin. Um, And then when the first ETH Berlin happened, uh, my goal was to go there and try. I bought a ticket for ETH Berlin, a ticket for DEF CON. uh, And I was like, I'll just go to those places and like get somebody to give me a job. Um, And I was really lucky that I actually landed my first job right before going to ETH Berlin. Uh, but that was kind of my plan. It was like, in person, it'll probably
0: be easier to like meet these companies and mm-hmm. and yeah, find find a good fit. So this was in uh, 2017-ish, right?
1: Yeah, late 2017, mm-hmm. early. Uh, I guess ETH Burden, the first one was in 2018. So I kind of started looking, you know, late 2017 again, probably like right, right before the top, um, and then kept looking throughout like the first half of 2018 and, and got something a bit later in
0: the year. Yeah, no, our timelines are about the same. So why Ethereum? Because in 2017, like right. there was everything, right? Like there was EOS, right, there were right. a billion billion Bitcoin yeah, forks. Yeah. Like why Ethereum?
1: You know, I would known about Ethereum since like the DAO, and, and just the project really resonated with me. It did seem like it was trying to build something like genuinely new. Um I, you know, I'm just like not that interested by say like Bitcoin forks, you know, where they like tweak a parameter and like, you know, kind of derivative projects. Um so I and I don't know, in 2017, aside from Ethereum and like Bitcoin, and maybe a couple of smaller ones like Monero or stuff like that, and Zcash, there weren't like a lot of actually legitimate projects. Um, And I also felt uh, the risk reward of working on, say, like an ICO project was pretty bad. Um, And that's kind of what got me to to decide to work on Ethereum full time is when there was this ICO boom, I was like, you know, all these projects... Might fail, but clearly it shows there's like demand for Ethereum, right? Like there's demand for like using this platform. And also, the thing that I realized was like how kind of broken Ethereum was. Like, I don't know if you remember then, but like ICOs could like plug the mempool Mm -hmm. for like two days or something like that. And it was like really hard to get a transaction in. And I was like, clearly, there's a lot of work to do at the protocol level. There's like some demand for the protocol itself. Um, and all the stuff built on top still feels pretty speculative, and I was not—I didn't feel like I knew enough to be able to say like, you know, this is like a project that is actually going to make it. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, Ethereum just felt like I don't know, like the platform order is like the most actual activity innovation happening on it. Um, and in a spot where there was still a lot to do to actually improve the protocol.
0: While you were going through this 2017, 2018 journey of learning how to get into the space, were you more of like a lone wolf or did you have like company, like a friend to go with you? I remember in 2017, no, like actually, I, I had like yeah. five or six like friends in a group chat, right? And so like that, we all kind of shared knowledge. What was your dynamic like that? No, like, yeah, the exact opposite, like completely alone.
1: Yeah. There's like one guy who told me about Ethereum and, and Bitcoin and like, We're not like close friends, so like you know, I I, you know, I I like messaged him probably ten times in the span of three years about it. But like, yeah, no, I didn't really have anybody I knew uh, interested into that.
0: And I feel like that was also kind of true when you were building your businesses, your early businesses, when you were first experimenting with being an entrepreneur. Were you also a lone wolf then too?
1: Uh, More or less, like a lot of them had co-founders or had friends involved in that, or like made friends through the process. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, a lot of them probably started with me more or less alone. And then, you know, I
0: kind of brought people into it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was your first job in Ethereum?
1: Uh, so I, I I got super lucky. Uh, Consensus was just starting your protocol team um, and they needed product managers. So uh, actually, I, I tried, I think it was like early in the year I applied, I interviewed and they're like, we're kind of looking for a product lead and not like a single PM. Um, and we'll call you back if like we ever hire single PMs. And I thought... They were just being polite uh, and like say no, mm-hmm. but it actually did call me back like four months later. They were like, "Well, we hired a product lead. Now we're looking for actual PMs. Are you still interested?" Mm-hmm. Um, I said yes. So it was just like such a, a perfect fit. Uh, and at that time, Consensus was building a client from scratch. So I basically joined right after they had like the called the V one, but it was really more like a V zero uh like very basic clients that could like sync to mainnet, uh only had full full sync, was only an archive node. So, you know, aside from like working in theory, it, it really didn't do a lot like on mainnet. Um <laughs> and then over the next couple of years we basically got to like build that and add kind of all the features you expect in like a you know standard Ethereum client like fast sync, pruning, uh all the JSON RPC support, tracing and, and all that stuff.
0: Did this client have a name? uh yeah so it was called pantheon now it's Basu. oh yeah. yeah 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 i remember it yep 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 yep, yep, yep. Uh, uh, yep. So did, and it still exists today yeah right did you feel like equipped or like qualified uh to be able to do that like was that was that a challenge for you right um so i'm not sure
1: there were a lot of people who would have been like a hundred percent ready i thought i you know I'd say it was probably 50% there. My biggest like surprise or learning when I first started is I assumed I could like read the spec, you know, like the yellow paper the beige paper, and like that would be like 80% of the actual client, right? Like these are like the rules of Ethereum. But it's more the opposite. It's more like 20%. And like 80% of stuff in clients, like for example, FastSync doesn't have a spec, right? Like the spec, mm. there's like a PR on geth that explains how it works. But it's like, yeah, there, there's so many things that are kind of like that where they're not. There may be specified somewhere, but you really have to know where to look for, um, and it's quite obscure. And you kind of have to learn by like either using the other clients uh, or you know like trying to understand what they did. Um, so yeah, the, you know that was a lot, probably the part where I had to like ramp up the most uh, was just you know understanding all these these parts
0: of, of Ethereum that are like. Specified in, in weird corners of the internet. And is that true just because of like the chaotic nature of Ethereum? Just it was a young ecosystem, people weren't really writing stuff down. Like why was that true, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is maybe like you don't know in advance what, what will be like the popular feature. So for example, like uh SnapSync, or sorry, no, FastSync uh is what get implemented, and Parity at the time had warp sync. Um and And SnapSync actually turned out to be, sorry, FastSync. SnapSync is what they have now, so I keep referring to that. But FastSync uh, Mm -hmm. just turned out to be like the better of the two, and so everybody kind of converged towards that. But like when they were implementing it, you know, we kind of didn't know that in advance. And for example, for tracing, it's the exact opposite. Parity's tracing APIs are actually the ones that everybody, uh, say like EtherScan or exchanges use, Um, and then the Geth ones are are less used, Um, and so yeah same thing it's just like you know people kind of didn't necessarily know in advance which one would uh would work Yeah, or also like how people would use them right like um there's a bunch of like quirks and like tracing APIs. like you know how you want to like figuring out if a transfer has actually happened can be quite hard uh if it's like a smart contract that's say sending an erc20 um you actually need to run through everything and make sure it doesn't revert and and only then can you actually like mark, say the tokens as transferred. Um and so over time, people like exchanges or block explorers, they just gain really deep familiarity with like these APIs and they know all the quirks around them and how to handle them. And like, yeah, these things just become kind of cemented as like the the standard, even though
0: they didn't set out to be uh, used like that. Or use used so extensively, basically. One of the things that me and Ryan are particularly obsessed with is are like, and the broader Ethereum ecosystem are like the values of Ethereum. And when you start to like build out a client, is that where you start to become related to those things? Like building out a client and also like making sure that Ethereum like retains the values that it was originally purported to have. Like, was that a relevant conversation when you were building out this client?
1: Yeah. I think the biggest one is like, you know, all core devs is probably the place where that like plays the biggest role, mm. um, and I think the questions we had at Basu specifically is like you know, given Basu was funded by like Consensus and Consensus is like a big organization in the space, like you know, should like our views reflect you know Consensus's position every time? Should you have people kind of reflect their own views? Like how do you, um, how do you make sure that like you build this in a way that's just aligned with the other teams? Um, and so. Yeah, I, I think we we weren't, you know, super explicit about like, okay, what are like the values we want to embody, as much as just like what the like every interaction we have, like how does that reflect, you know, is this like a net positive for the ecosystem? Um Yeah. So I think it's yeah, it's kind of all these small decisions of like how you act and, and like, you know, the the battles you picked and the things, you know, kind of when are you when are you willing to just like, you know, let others win and 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 this is like the hard part about Ethereum. Like we have, you know, four clients and they all have like different trade-offs that they make. And sometimes, you know, some feature can be like harder for you to implement because of you know your architecture and stuff like that. And just thinking about like, okay, how do we make sure this all works when we disagree with people? Like, how strongly do we want to express that? Uh and you know, overall, like, does this make Ethereum better or you know, does this just benefit us? And I think we've tried to be really mindful of that. And the team still is, uh, so I'm no longer
0: there. But I think they still do like a really good job of that. So it's less about like the Ethereum values and more about just like the technical details of like if we build this in this way, will that trip up other clients that build it in a different way? Yeah, but but I think yeah, I think one of the big values is like decentralization,
1: obviously, and and like having multiple implementations was always something like that was important to Ethereum, Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it. it was pretty critical like in 2016 when there were the Shanghai attacks um and even now like you know if one client has a bug it's it's great that we can have others kind of uh pick it up even more so with the merge uh with the fact that like staking penalties are like anti-coordinated so i think it's just like the this idea of like decentralization and like resiliency is probably the one that like as a client team you spend most of your time thinking about mm-hmm. um and that's like a, another interesting conversation like you know how much time or how little time i guess client teams spend understanding what's happening on ethereum um especially as it grows in complexity like you literally can't understand everything that's that's uh being built so just trying to figure out like you know where do where do on on what like ethereum value can we have an impact and like you know how do we make
0: sure we do a good job there yeah Do you remember like a particular like decision or issue that had to just like really be unpacked, like for a good example for the listeners just so they can wrap their head around like these small choices that had to be made that what you would have to consider and what that process was like? Sure. So, I can
1: go like very technical and then like much more broad, but like the very technical one, for example, is the ETH networking protocol. Um so ha- so the format by which nodes communicate with each other. So when they send a new transaction, how is that how is that formatted? Right. And this is like you can think of it like how nodes talk to each other on the network. Um the the four you know, these formats all have like uh, assumptions embedded into them and we improve them. And oftentimes, if you want to create say like a new sync algorithm, when you're syncing, you're basically asking you a bunch of nodes on the network for for data about the network. Uh, so this is where like things change a lot. Um, and I think there's a lot of time where like uh, Geth has been like building new syncing algorithms, and they've uh, and supporting these 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 networking formats is something that adds like a lot of technical depth to them. And uh, they really benefit when other teams kind of drop, you know, are able to also quickly deprecate that, um, so that they can just you know refactor their code and, and make their syncing work better. Uh, so that's an example where I think we've always tried, like with the Basu team, even though we we might not be implementing the same syncing algorithm at, as them for like another year, uh, to try and see okay how can we prioritize this thing because it, it helps them. Uh, Another thing that's really basic is just like adding testing infrastructure, right? Like the EF maintains a lot of the Ethereum testing infrastructure, and it's really valuable when other client teams are able to like spare some resources that to help improve that. Um, And that's one thing you know we try to be mindful about. Um, Bit more high level and and probably relevant to like most of your listeners is like EIP fifteen fifty nine. So when we decided to start working on that, it felt like something where we had kind of the skill set in the team, and we also had the bandwidth and like literally nobody else in the client teams had they all had the skill set obviously but they didn't have like the bandwidth to do that um so that just felt like something that was like super valuable for ethereum where there was a lot of work that could be done and we knew that like we could do a lot of the work, you know, ourselves and then get it to a point where it was like a bit more ready so that when we started involving other client teams, like that, you know, the foundation has been set, Um, and that was stuff like obviously implementing the EIP itself, but just like building tools, uh, to test it better, uh, and stuff like that. So yeah, that was probably one of the biggest one in the past couple of years where like,
0: I think we were able to, to to really have an impact. I've always thought like the position of being a client dev is really, really interesting because it, there's a little bit of like evolutionary fitness that goes into clients, right? Like yeah. bad clients drop off, good clients, yeah. uh, you know, be- become downloaded more. Yeah. And the cool thing about crypto is it's all like biomimicry, right? And so whichever client can get themselves replicated more is a therefore a successful client. Yeah. Yet at the same time, like yeah. clients can't be in too much of a competition with each other because you don't actually want one client to have a monopoly, right? right. You don't want one one little organism to dominate the whole entire ecosystem because then the whole ecosystem will die off right. because you can't have centralization on, on one client. So I've always thought it's like there's this tug of war between yeah. like you want to make the best client, but you can't make it too good because then you, then you s- yeah. smother all the other clients. What was the conversation? Right. Is this a conversation with client teams?
1: Yeah. So we've had this. I think every team kind of agrees they're not going to make their client worse, right? Like, so you know, like whether that's like the Get team or, you know, Aragon, like they're all, you know, say very good on, on certain aspects. Like, I don't think any team is willing to compromise to like make their client worse, you know, for for like the sake of client diversity, just because, you know, at the end of the day, we do want like to offer a good, a good product for for the users. Um, I think what we often compromise on is like making the client better, but slower, right? Like, it's like, we have, we all have like these roadmaps for what we want to do. But then if other people kind of have other stuff that's really important to them, you know, we're, we're sometimes fine, just like, you know, not, not doing something, but just making it in a way that, you know, gives others time to adapt and stuff like that. Um, and for example, you know, like this happens a lot, uh, say with the Aragon team today, they have like a completely different architecture. Um, and so oftentimes, like if we can do things that like allow them to implement that better, then I think we we, we really should try and do that. Um, and, and because, you know, even though they might not be the most popular client on the network today, they're, you know, potentially like the most popular client in like three years and try you know leaving the room for that is is what allows us to have people who come in and like decide they're going to build a whole new client and i wouldn't be surprised like after the merge kind of the the assumptions around like what the network should provide and whatnot kind of change and there might be a new team that pops up and that's like well you know we're gonna build a client who like doesn't care about anything before the merge. Um, you know, if you want to validate proof of work, sorry, we just don't support that. Um, but we can be like really optimized for validating everything starting from the merge, for example. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's really valuable. You wanna leave the space for that because this is how you know we we keep having like better core infrastructure for Ethereum. Um and I'll add a note, like I'll shield the clients a bit more. Like, when, when you, you hear about like Ethereum killers or like, you know, EV, especially EVM compatible Ethereum killers or even like roll up solutions, a lot of them reuse clients from Ethereum. Like a lot of them, you know, will just fork Geth and like build their whole uh, kind of basically network around it. Uh, Tron, Avalanche, Optimism are all forks of Geth um, and uh, Polygon as well. So I think that shows you like how good the software actually is um and we want to make sure that you know we we keep this software really good and we we give the space for people to come in and build like even better software on the foundation and for example aragon which is used to be called TurboGeth, um is a client that like stores data in a much more efficient way but that also started as a fork of geth and now you know they still can bring some changes in but they've they've made like major modifications so they're, they're I'm not sure it's like, it's it's fair to them to call them a fork of geth anymore, but they mm. definitely started out as that. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's really valuable that we, we, we leave the space for new people to come in and improve on this stuff. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to keep on going on this conversation, but but since we touched on it, like, why is everything a fork of geth? Like, why geth? It's, it's just so good. Um, and and so i guess a couple of things so i guess this is is
1: extremely good it's also the old, the oldest still running client mm-hmm. um so there's a lot of you know people who are knowledgeable about it um i think the the license is is quite friendly um and and yeah like also people probably expect that it's going to be maintained you know forever like like, for example, Parity was, was very, very uh, uh, popular as well. And the, the original team kind of walked away from it. And there's been others who've, like, attempted to, to maintain it. But, like, it's a really hard job to maintain a client. And so it's, you know, even though some teams, you know, can come in a few engineers, it's there's, like, uncertainty about, like, well, will this thing actually still be there, like, in five years? Or am I going to have to move off to something completely different? And I think the Get team has, like, shown that, you know, they'll, they've been there since basically the start of Ethereum. And they'll probably be there like, up
0: to the end of Ethereum. So isn't this just, like, a massive public goods problem? with Because, like, if we need these clients to be maintained, basically, until Ethereum dies, yeah. like, how, how do we expect these clients to just be maintained for the next, like, you know, multi-generation timeframes? Right, right. So I think,
1: luckily, like, the space has grown in terms of funding. And um, I think... With regards to just like basic maintenance, like think about it, like paying maintainers' salaries, mm-hmm. we're probably getting into a spot where it's, it's, I wouldn't say easy, but like it's 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 a manageable problem. So whether that's like you know through large grants, either from the EF or others, uh, or through clients have you know working with say layer two teams or whatnot um, that get then get paid for that work, like I think there's there's more and more options where like. You know, starting a client can be, say, like a profitable business in a way. Um, I think the biggest challenge and something I, you know, I, I want to spend more time on is aligning the incentives so that the risk reward of working on a client is is better. Um, so right now, you know, most client teams... Or most client teams like devs at best have like equity in the company they work for, right? Like everybody who works at Nethermind has like Nethermind equity. Everybody who works at Consensus has consensus equity. Um, but that's like a very indirect like value creation to capture mechanism. Um and um and there there is like obviously some amount of risk. To work on the protocol, but it's 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 less than like starting your own, you know, DeFi project, for example. You're not like starting from scratch. Um, but I still think that the kind of reward for working on the protocol, which is you know, from zero past your salary to like some equity in some company that's like tangentially related to to the client and, and also not necessarily correlated with like Ethereum's rise, um that's like way too low. And so what you know, the the risk is that people are are able to take like a little bit more risk. So they go from like working on the clients to starting their own DeFi project, which is obviously riskier, but then instead of getting, you know, 10 times the reward or like five times the reward, they get like a hundred or a thousand X times the reward, right? Um and so what what I really want to make sure is like that we can create mechanisms where we can have some like rewards for these people that's correlated with like the overall growth and adoption of Ethereum. Um and what this could be in practice is something like, you know, asking projects to like donate a percentage of their treasury, you know, when uh to some fund that goes out to client developers, for example. Um and and something like that where like if you can get new projects like that that are just starting out to have like a social commitment to that, um, then you know a subset of those projects will be really successful. And that kind of provides some upside to the to the different people working on this stuff. Um Obviously, once you get into the weeds of it, there's like a ton of, of this details about like how do you, you know, how do you decide who's in, who's out of the list, you know, how do you wait people, how much do you ask for projects and, and whatnot. But like generally, I think this idea of like if we could get projects to provide some sort of like upside contribution or fun, um, that would help make working on a client like a much better risk reward kind of proposition. Um, it'll never beat obviously starting a successful DeFi protocol, but like Doing that is also taking way more risk. And, and I suspect there's a lot of people who'd be happy with just, you know, like slightly better upside given the risk that they already take. Um, yeah. So so that's one thing I think is really important and where the community can really kind of innovate on in the next couple of years.
0: Is there a world where it doesn't have to rely on like donations or contributions, but there's actually a way to like turn this into a business? Like I know, I'm pretty sure. Like it's like blasphemous right. for a client to like have some sort of like you know fee in it, right? Like, but but is there any way to? So so a lot of them, a lot of them have businesses, but the problems like those businesses are like.
1: They capture such a small percentage of the value. So for example, like a very common business with like, uh, E2 or like, you know, consensus clients is like, you can offer professional support to like staking services, mm. right? Like consensus does this. And I'm sure I'm not super familiar, but like, I'm sure basically every team will do this. It's like, if you're Coinbase and you want to use, you know, uh, consensus as client, right. you can get like, you know, enterprise level support and, and consensus obviously generates revenue from that. And I think. This is why I was saying earlier, like I think you can build a sustainable business into starting these clients, but you- But they they don't have token gains, right? Exactly, they don't have like the exponential upsides that you see in like a lot of, of crypto native stuff. And I haven't seen like a good proposal to like embed that in clients directly. Um, that doesn't require say like you know on-chain allocations right. to, to dev funds and, right. and i don't think that's something we want to do it starts to feel like um, a
0: cartel right at that
1: point exactly right yeah yeah and like i i would be very uneasy to have like something on chain that like sends funds to a bunch of addresses or to one addresses that, that just seems and there was a proposal for it a couple of years ago that got shot down pretty hard so I, I i don't think we'll get we're not gonna get funds from the protocol. Um, and I think the revenue is nice, but it basically pays for the salary, mm-hmm. and it's almost like we need some mechanism to pay for like the the upside or like the equity, and and that's like the bit that's missing. Um, and yeah, donations totally might not be the the the, the final or like the best approach. Um, if people have suggestions, send them to me. Uh, I'm happy to to try and uh, to
0: try and get those working. Yeah. For a thought experiment, for example, say we figure out as an ecosystem how we do actually attach the upside potential of a token to building a client, uh, and then say, say again in this thought experiment that we, we we successfully figure that out, and then all of a sudden clients and tokens are paired. And then like we have some sort of just like mania where like, oh, I can like make my token go 1000x by starting a new client. Yeah. And then we go from having like a handful of right. clients to like hundreds and right. thousands of clients. Is that yeah, a problem? Yeah. If we have like hundreds and hundreds of clients?
1: So I think, you know, the, the easy solution to that problem is, like, you time-gate it, right? Like, you, so you time and feature-gate it. So you say, you know, your client has to be live for a year, and, like, the EF, if you want to build a new client, you know, come see the EF's grant program or some other, you know, Moloch DAO or something, and, like, you know, we'll give you funds to, like, actually try this and prototype this, but, like... I think if you have any that sort of mechanism, you you require clients to have been live for like x amount of time, mm. and it's it's like extremely hard to start a client, so like most people will give up before a year, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so and I don't know, maybe like a, a year's too short. Like maybe it's two years. I, I don't have a strong opinion. Um, and then you you like feature gate it as well. It's like, well, can you like sync the main net and like process these blocks, like or, or you know post merge? Can you like be a validator? Mm. So there's like a couple of things that like. Uh, And say, if you're a validator, like, you know, can you like keep these metrics, right? Like, can you like attest to like X percentage of the blocks? Can you propose blocks on times? And I think it's, it's not that hard to define like the the baseline for what a successful client is. It's quite hard to build it. Um, And there's been, you know, probably 50% of teams who've tried that like have not made it to like this bar historically. So yeah, I I, I think that would be the way to go. Um, And like... And then you know, if we have twice as more, like there's a, you know, there, there's a discussion to have, like you know, how much do we need, and does it bring you extra efficiency or not? Um, and but that feels like kind of a happy problem, if like if like the problem we're having is like too many smart people want to work on this, <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm sure we can figure out a way
0: to, to 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 have them work productively. Yeah, I want to pick up the client diversity line again yeah. because are there conversations in, in the very 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 long term, like? 50 to hundred plus years about the inevitable centralization of Ethereum onto one client. Do do people think that ultimately one client will kind of win out or is there like a conversation that like, oh, we can, we just need to be able to balance it just enough. Right. What are like the long-term thoughts about client yeah. diversity in the, in the very long-term?
1: Yeah. So I, I'm sure people like have very different opinions. So Like I can, I can speak to myself, yeah. like in what I see, but like it's, So one of the challenges with, like, not the very long term, but say, like, the short to medium term is, like, people have, like, a really strong sense of pride in what they built, right? Like, so people who build a new client, they're not going to, like, pack up and go home and, like, be like, okay, I'll just, like, work on Geth instead. Like, people put, like, you know, huge amounts of resources and efforts into that. And and so I think they want to make it successful. So I think there's, like, this... um, this i don't know like inherent like motivation for for different people who started these projects to, to keep maintaining them um you know i think i i would be weary of only having like a single client like in the future like if you told me that like i don't know in like 50 years we have like two or three that seems like less bad um and and, and the challenge is like if one client goes down and has a bug um then like the Ethereum network basically stops working, right? And and again, that's maybe something that like we change our mind on as a community, but so far we've had like an extremely strong bias on Ethereum to like the chain doesn't go down, right? And Ethereum's been has had like a higher uptime than Bitcoin. Uh the Bitcoin chain has like very early on in its life, you know, stalled for a while while they, they put out a bug fix. Like that hasn't happened on Ethereum. Um and and I think there's especially like as more and more economic activity gets built on ethereum right like you you what what we're selling basically to people building on ethereum is this like settlement layer that does not go down and that you can always rely that like you know post merge every 12 seconds there's a new block that comes in um and if for some reason the chain had to go down like for two days or like even a day and this is this is like the You know, the amount of time you'd expect, like, an A-plus engineering team, if there's a bad bug, to, like, wake up in the middle of the night, find what the issue is, fix it, test it, and ship it, and get everybody, you know, to update their nodes. You know, realistically, you can't do that within, like, less than 12 hours, probably. Uh, And, like, if the Ethereum chain went down for 12 hours, that'd be terrible. Like, just think today, you Mm -hmm. know, what would happen with, like, DeFi, what would happen, you know, with like all the businesses who like rely on being able to accept payments, um, with all the insurance that's like on Ethereum. What, and if you, if you look out five, 10 years in the future, it's like, if TradFi is selling on this, imagine it's like market close in the US or in Asia and like, you know, you're, you're selling for the day and like Ethereum's down. So like if if people had to like expect ethereum to be down i think you take away you know 50 plus percent of like ethereum's value proposition um and so i think we really want to be in a spot client wise where like this can't happen right and i'm not sure what the right number is it's definitely bigger than 1 i think it's also bigger than 2 <laughs> um like it's it's not 10 or 100 but like somewhere in that range i think is is really healthy um, and, and I think it becomes even more healthy after the merge because some of these bugs can have impacts on like people's stakes, right? Like, so if there's just one client and there's a bug in it and the chain goes down, um, you know, you, you basically, you know, can, can lose people money that are validating on the network. And that's also something like, mm. yeah, it's, it's a big part of the value proposition. Like you can be a validator and earn income. And if you do things right, like you, you shouldn't be penalized. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know, that's my opinion. Like, some people might disagree. Um, and I also think, yeah, if we want Ethereum to keep innovating in, like, 50 years, the way to innovate is often to build something new. Because, like, for example, Geth could not build what uh, Aragon has built just because they need to support all the current Geth users. So, like, new teams are able to kind of leapfrog and, and, and kind of, you know, if, if in 50 years we have, like, all zero-knowledge-based Ethereum, I suspect we'd have a client that's built to like support zero-knowledge proofs like from the core from day one, mm-hmm. and that would be way more efficient than whatever zero-knowledge implementation is added to Geth, um, just because you can take all the decisions making those assumptions. So, yeah, I, I think we'll always keep a few. Um, it's really important for the resiliency. I don't know. Some people might, might disagree with that, though.
0: I definitely want to get into the zero-knowledge conversation later, but I also want to pick up on Tim's story. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying the show with Tim thus far. In the second half of the show, we are getting into the details of what does it actually mean to make changes to Ethereum, who actually is a core dev. Am I a core dev? Are you a core dev? Some interesting conversations, some interesting thought experiments coming up in the second half of the show. Before we get there, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Alchemix is one of the coolest new DeFi apps on the scene. It introduces self-paying loans allowing you to spend and save at the same time. Deposit the DAI stablecoin into the Alchemix Vault in order to get an advance on the interest it generates. Borrow up to 50% of the total amount of your deposited DAI in the form of ALUSD stablecoin. Here's the craziest part. The loan pays itself back and you cannot be liquidated. Unlock your assets potential in the ultimate DeFi savings account. And brand new to Alchemix is the ETH vault where you can deposit ETH into the application, borrow Al ETH against your deposits while having your advance gradually paid back over time. V2 is rapidly approaching, which will allow for even more collateral types plus a variety of yield strategies to choose from. Harness the power of Alchemix at alchemix.fi. That's A L C H E M I X.fi. Follow Alchemix on Twitter at alchemixfi and join the Discord in order to get involved with the Alchemix community and also Alchemix governance. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. And now it's live and has over 100 projects deployed. Gas fees on Ethereum L1 suck. Too many people want to use Ethereum, and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. And that's why teams like Arbitrum have been hard at work developing layer two solutions that makes transactions on Ethereum cheap and instant. Arbitrum increases Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and overall make a better user experience, go to developers.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. And if you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps being built on Arbitrum. Many DeFi applications on the Ethereum L1 are migrating over to layer twos like Arbitrum, and some are even skipping over the layer ones entirely and deploying directly on layer two. There's so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so go to bridge.arbitrum.io now and start bridging over your ETH or any of the tokens listed and start having the DeFi or NFT experience that you've always wanted. Tim, you came on a lot of people's radars because of your efforts on EIP 1559. Can you talk about the transition from working on Besu into EIP-1559? You touched on it a little bit, but just keep on going down that story.
1: Yeah, so I, I kind of mentioned earlier, like, you know, at Consensus, we always tried to think about, like, what are things we can do that really help the the community and that, like, we're maybe uniquely positioned to do. Um, and 1559 kind of fit that bill perfectly because um, it was like a huge effort. Like, we knew getting into it, it would be huge. We under- estimated how big. But we, <laughs> we knew it would be big and bigger than we estimated. Um, and we also like, you know, we wanted people to use base suit. So we were like, well, if we're the first ones to get like a testnet with 1559, you know, people will want to try that and, and, and it'll be, it'll be good for us. Um, and we also saw like, you know, no one was really working on it. So like it, there had been some original efforts done, but the team had kind of stepped away. Um, or, you know, they, they weren't super like it was, it was like missing momentum, basically. Um, and, um, and it seemed like something that was just, uh, mostly like desired by like a very large part of the community like it was somewhat contentious but like it felt like an i don't know 80 percent bet that like this thing will actually make it on chain assuming it's safe um and finally also yeah sort of noting like when 1559 was first presented the get team like basically had a bunch of technical issues with it and no one had like really addressed them but we have like a really clear list of like problems to solve um and so yeah so we you know we decided to take like one or two engineers have them like look into it really deeply at first to, to understand you know are we missing something here um and then you know we just started kind of prototyping it uh, I started running calls with like the people who had been involved in the past to see like you know like what have you guys done you know what were like the blockers what are like the things we're missing to to get the mainnet um, there were a couple, like, really big changes we made to the spec that that really helped simplify it. Um, so, for example, the original 1559 EIP uh, had, like, this transition period. So it was, like, on we're going to have a hard fork, and, like, on the hard fork block, you're going to start with, like, 1% of transactions, and a block can be 1559. And then, like, over, like, six months or a year, I forget, you know you'll have 100% or maybe 99%, like you always leave a bit of room for like legacy transactions, but you kind of transition this way. And that was super complicated because like we would have clients maintain like two different mempools, one for 1559 transactions, one for Mm. normal ones have to create a block and like you need to like cross check them um and if we got to the spot where we wanted to like actually deprecate legacy transactions you have this problem of like somebody signed a transaction five years ago they walked away in the woods and like now they come back and they want to submit it to the network and like they can't because you know we've bricked it Um, ah right so that's one thing that like even though in in theory it, it might or in practice, it might not matter much. Like in theory, it felt very important to keep this property. Like if you've signed an Ethereum transaction, we shouldn't like lock you out of the system. Um, and so, uh, Micah Zoltu found like a really smart way that we could convert legacy transactions to 1559 one, um, where we set the the gas price to the, both the max fee and and, and the priority fee, um, and that allowed not only to like solve that problem, but also to simplify the spec hugely because then we had a way. To have a single mempool and you can just like treat all transactions as though they were 1559 style transactions um and and you know like we just spent like a year basically that was one of like the bigger kind of you know fixes to the spec but we spent like a year going over this and trying to figure out you know what are like the problems here or how can we fix it uh the other huge one was um there was no proof or like analysis that showed 1559 actually worked like everybody who yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah everybody who like had spec'd it and and like looked at it from the client side kind of understood intuitively why it would work and why it was a better system but like some people were, were uneasy they were like well you know what if we're wrong um
0: and so uh basically there was and this question is about like we don't really know until we see it in action and we can't really know ahead of time is that kind of the issue no it was more about like the economics of it like we don't know if this is like a sound economic system and like when you
1: think about it mm. you're like it sounds like it but like we were scared that like some mm. economists would just look at it and be like oh no this is absolutely broken like you know somebody will do this and like you know kind of bypass the system um And so somebody basically helped and and hired Tim Rothgarden, who's a computer science and game game theory professor, uh, or economics professor who specializes in game theory. Um, And he basically spent three months with his team researching 1559 and trying to come up with a formal proof or model of like, does this actually meet uh, the the goals that it's intending to? Um, And he published like a 50 page paper, uh, the TLDR of which was, yes, it basically does, um yeah, and that was that was hugely valuable because at least there was something we could point to that was like you know somebody with like deep expertise in this field who also understands ethereum like you know was able to analyze this and like there was no like massive shortcomings in it um so it was just like yeah, spending the time to doing all this, and towards the end we got to a spot where like we were actually ready to sh- to put this onto mainnet, and I think there was more work around like trying to educate the community around like what 1559 does and doesn't do. Uh, so I spent a bunch of time, wrote a bunch of articles trying to, to explain that and like, you know, what can people expect? Like, for example, like, you know, people thought 1559 would like massively lower transaction fees on Ethereum and just trying to explain, like, what does it actually do to transaction fees? Um, And similarly, you know, there was a lot of talk about like miners and how would miners react. So I spent a bunch of times, uh, Working with folks not only to analyze that, but also to like talk with miners and you know try to explain to them this change, um, and trying to explain to them you know other revenue sources that they could get and like how to prepare for that. Um, yeah, so I don't. Know, it was a lot of like very technical work at first, then kind of transitioned to more like community outreach and just like a uh, lot of explaining. Fifteen fifty
0: nine. So a lot of your EIP fifteen fifty nine work came through working on Besu.
1: Yeah, yeah, basically. And it was extremely helpful to be in that position because I had a dev team that could actually write the code, mm-hmm. right?
0: And then you actually transitioned into a different role in Ethereum. How long after did that happen? Uh,
1: yeah, so basically, I think I'd been at consensus for two and a half years or so. Um, mm-hmm. And I was always like involved in the Awkward Devs call uh, because I was I was on one of the client teams. Um, but I was also kind of the less technical person on those calls. Like I was kind of the only non-engineer there, basically, alongside Hudson. Mm-hmm. Uh and sometimes you know other folks show up like Pooja and and uh James Hancock was was there also earlier on. Um, but like, you know, the calls is basically 90% engineers, and then like some kind of people like us uh, who are more on like the project and product management side of things. Um and towards uh basically the end of 2020. Uh, I was talking with Hudson and he mentioned, you know, he had been doing this for, I think, five years up to then and wanted to move to something new. Um, and, you know, that just felt like such a great opportunity. Like, it felt like something where uh, I knew kind of, you know, how all has devs worked. Uh, I think I, I had some ideas about, like, how we could potentially improve it. And also, like... My time, like my opportunity cost for doing this, wasn't that high. Like you don't want an engineer to run awkward devs. Like you want them to like write the code. Um, so I was like, I'm one of the few people who like understand how this whole thing works, but also I can't actually write the clients. So like the the like next most valuable thing I can do is is try and like manage or run this whole thing. Um, and and so yeah, I got to talking with Hudson, and it, it seemed like a good transition. Uh, one thing the EF was super mindful about is they really don't like taking people from projects and like bringing them into the EF. Uh, they really want to like you know push many projects to thrive. Um, so so one thing we we did was I took basically six months to transition out of my role at Consensus so that we could hire somebody new and and train her uh, who, who's basically the new product lead for baseu today, Sajida. Um, and and I kind of started working part time at the EF and like went part time at the Consensus once we had hired Sajida so I could just you know kind of help onboard her and and then yeah over basically uh, I think it was around March I, j- I was just like full time at, at at the EF and no longer at Consensus.
0: For the listener that isn't familiar and which I mean it includes me at this point, uh, really, can you just like TLDR explain like M five what Hudson and now your role is with with the EF like what is it that's really happening?
1: Right, right. Um not super easy, but like um the,
0: <laughs> so the
1: the main thing is every 2 weeks there's this call where all the different client developers get together to discuss changes to Ethereum, right? This is how we plan, you know, network upgrades, uh, how we discuss, you know, new EIPs and whatnot, and you need like a moderator for this call. So that's kind of my job. Like at a very basic level it's like every two weeks i sit on this youtube call and i you know try to make sure that we uh you know we get through all the topics um from there you know to make sure like those calls generally go well um i spend a lot of time thinking about how can we make you know client development like a sustainable and like thriving thing and so that you know that includes things like working on grants programs or just you know talking with the teams and uh, organizing workshops when we need to so just like you know making sure that like the kind of working environment around this is 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 good um and then the other half of my job is basically explaining all the stuff that we do to like the broader ethereum community um mm-hmm. and so stuff like this podcast or like uh you know writing these tweet threads that I do or writing articles um just trying to like take what we spend like all our time on and make it accessible to somebody who's like obviously familiar with ethereum but like doesn't want to spend two hours every two weeks listening to this call and trying to dig through like EIPs and pull requests and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I really see it kind of a, like twofold: like internally, work with the client teams, make sure that like we're you know we have a roadmap for Ethereum, we're executing on it, and like trying to, to like unblock the biggest blockers, whatever they are as they come up, and then kind of sharing what's happening with the broader Ethereum community so that they. Can have like a feeling for what happens, and obviously can participate if there's something that they they support or disagree with. Then my hope is like somebody can just like skim my tweet threads and be like, oh man, this is like a terrible idea, and then like engage on this like one specific issue uh, rather than to have to like listen to all the calls all year long mm-hmm. and like the hope that you know nothing goes wrong.
0: Right, so you're you're a relayer between the community and all of the client teams, right? Just relaying yeah. the data, yeah. and then uh, in both ways, right? Like, yeah. hey, uh, client teams, like the community. Has these concerns, or yeah. like, hey, client teams, like there's this thing called the IP one five five nine that the community really, really, really likes. Yeah, uh, and then probably vice versa too, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that's giving me too much credit. So it's like if I had to simplify it, <laughs> I, I think I'm a better relayer from the core devs to the community. And we've actually hired somebody to do kind of okay. the opposite. Uh, so Trent Van Epps uh, mm. works with me closely, ah, yes. and if I had to describe, I'd say he basically does the opposite. He's like better at Go to the community and getting their opinion and bringing it back. Or like if we have something that really affects kind of the community, like he helped a lot with 1559 and, and now with the merge, for example, mm-hmm. trying to like reach out to like all the projects. Um, Yeah. So it's basically two full-time jobs. One is sending the information out and the other one is getting the, the information yeah. in. Yeah. And we, we obviously
0: work uh, outbound and inbound. Yeah. Yeah. And we we work really closely together. Yeah. That's cool. So we like, What's that like? Like what, what's it like to work with all of the client teams like are cuz they're all engineers, right? Yeah. And so like the they engineering type that like the meme is that engineers they're really good at code but they're not really good at communicating and right. sometimes they're all kind of like lone wolves. Like what, what's that just what's that experience like?
1: Right. I think most teams have, like, some people who, like, are actually pretty good at both, who are good on, like, the engineering and, like, the more project management level. And and typically, they'll, like, self-select those people and, like, have them participate. Um So I don't necessarily have to in- interact with, like, all the engineers, right? I can interact with, like, the subset who decides they want to, like, participate in, like, the project management. Um But, yeah, like, I mean, and I think I kind of see it as my job to, like, fit around their schedules or like their constraints rather than the other way around. Like, you know, they have to like write all the code. So, you know, uh yeah, I just generally try to 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 work in a way that's convenient with them, whether that's like whatever platform you message them on or like, you know, what time you schedule meetings with them. Like just like all these small things that like, you know, uh ideally don't add too much friction to their day job of actually building the clients. Um but yeah, like I know, most teams have been like great to work with. Like I don't have any complaints about like them. Um and I think the the other part that's like really interesting is I work with 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 those and, and spend most of my time with those too, but I also like tend to work with basically everybody who submits an EIP that gets you know some amount of traction. And then I kind of help them, you know, get this in front of the right people, um, and and uh and do that as well. So yeah, I I do I'm I'm stoked. Like I get to work with like all the smartest people working on the protocol. Um and kind of observe and like sit around as 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 they like build a theorem.
0: Do you worry about like your own impartiality, impartialness? Yeah. Like, do you like it's like hey, there's the thing that I'm interested in. Hey, core devs, let's focus on this. Or like, are you kind of like a steward yeah, yeah, that yeah. is supposed to be apolitical and just facilitating communication? Right. Well, have you ever did balance that at all?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. It's something I think about. So, for example, when we did 1559, and th- when we decided whether it was going to be included, I asked Hudson to come and run those calls because I obviously had like a strong you know feeling there. Um. I think, yeah. Generally, I'll try to be on the more impartial side. Um, I think you can't be like a hundred percent impartial as well. Like, uh, and, and this is like when we were having fifteen fifty nine, you know, conversations. For example, you know, oft- sometimes there are like some bad faith arguments, and if you just give you know as much of a platform to like bad faith arguments as to like good faith arguments. You're not actually being impartial, right? You're kind of tainting the thing, mm. um, and I think that's something that's like a bit more subtle, like that I, I try to, to think about a lot. Um, at the end of the day, like you know, I can't really do much. Like even if I feel really strongly about something, if the devs don't want to implement it, like you know, I can't can't force them, right? Like, and this is true of anyone, not just me. Like you need to like actually convince people because, and then it's like even if I convince the devs. And like all the community hated it. Well, nobody would download the software, and so they'd have to to do that. So I think you, you need to be somewhat impartial, but it's also, um, I don't, what I spend like a lot of time like focusing on is finding out like what's the actual bit on which people disagree, and like focusing the conversation there, because I think a lot of time we lose like there's like you know say ten arguments, um, but there's actually like one or two of them that are really important, and like if we if we get like resolution on those, people will like you know. Be okay with like all the other small issues, um, and so when we have like these discussions, one thing, for example, I found really helpful is outside of the Alcor Devs call, reaching out to all the client teams and being like, "Hey, what do you guys think about this? What do you guys think about this?" Um, so that I can get to the call and be like, "Well, you know, have the teams think this, have the teams think that, you know, and like we can discuss this like one specific point of friction and like ideally move it forward." Um, yeah. So I yeah I know. I think being somewhat impartial is really important. I don't think you can be fully impartial. Um and another so for example, another like bias that like I and I think all core devs have is like we'll benefit the Ethereum mainnet over other like implementations of Ethereum, right? Uh so this idea of like interrog like we won't try to like kneecap other implementations, but like we'll always kind of put the Ethereum mainnet first, right? Um and you know that's obviously a bias because somebody from like Celo or like Avalanche come on the call and be like, well, you're not impartial. And I think we're fine telling them, well, you know, like we want to focus on the ethereum mainnet and like um so yeah, I mm-hmm. I think there there are like these decisions we've made and 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 I try to like adhere to like the rough social consensus um and and yeah, just to try and highlight like the biggest point of frictions between different people so we can ideally like spend most of our time
0: discussing those. This uh, line from the uh, Cypherpunks, I'll repeat whenever I get the opportunity, is that Cypherpunks understand that the code they write impacts the people that use it. Right. And like the all-core devs call is like, it's like the war room for all changes, all bits of code that, you know, in theory will impact generations and generations down the line. Yeah. It's probably really, really draining to think of every single decision as like, all right, well, what about three generations from now? What about 200 years from now? Right. But like, is that... People's thoughts and considerations, like behind the scenes. So I think the the part where we have it maybe slightly easier than that is people are willing to attack the Ethereum network
1: today. So we can usually get by saying like you know <laughs> will will somebody attack this right like if they can um, and and I'm not sure that's like a perfect proxy for like is this going to be good 200 years from now but we we can also make more changes in the future right like if we realize something's wrong in 10 years I hope we'll, we'll be able to change it. Um, So the the one kind of main bit we always think about is like, you know, what's like the security implication of this? And basically every EIP that gets proposed kind of goes through this. Somebody like is using Ethereum, they're like frustrated by something and they're like, man, I have like this perfect idea of a feature that like, you know, would would make this so much easier. They talk to other projects and they're like, they all agree they're like, man, this is great. Like such a good idea. And then they come on a Cordes call and like they get pointed out, well, you know, this like has like three security issues in it if we introduce it. Um, And then... Mm. At least half the EIPs just die there. Um and the ones that usually make it in, you'll have the author kind of then spend, you know, months and in some cases years trying to come up with like some workaround that's like provides the feature that they originally wanted to, but is also safe. Um and this is like 50 to like 90% of the work of actually getting an EIP onto mainnet is like, okay, how do we, you know, make sure that it's safe? Um and that's really like the main lens by which we 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 kind of view things. Um, obviously, there's like this implicit assumptions, like we want to do stuff that's useful to people. Um, but generally, that's not like the hard part. Like it's easy to like look at a new feature and be like, okay, yeah, this would help, you know, because it lowers gas costs, because it improves UX and, and whatnot. But then it's like... It has all these other problems, like that that people might exploit, and and how do we how do we address those?
0: So obviously vetting the code for making sure it doesn't break Ethereum is really really important. Yeah. But like have you ever experienced like a social attack, as in somebody's trying to make their way into the all core devs team to or to calls to implement some right, you know some social some social coordination attack? Because as we know, even outside of crypto, like most hacks are just like people social engineering other people. Right. Right. Is right. any story like this ever arisen? So I think what we see a lot, um a lot. Might be an overstatement. But like what we've
1: definitely seen like a, a few times at least is um people who come in with an with an EIP and they have like an incentive to get it in. Um they're like much more unrelenting Mm. than the people who don't want to get it in so like say you come up with an idea and it's like you really want this and you know people are like well there's problems a b and c with it and and then the next week you come up and you're like well i really want this idea and like the person doesn't want to like repeat like i told you you know there's problems a b and c and 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 you see that like it's it's almost like Uh, a war of attrition uh where like people would like try to bring up stuff over and over and over even though like the fundamental issues with them had not been been like addressed um and i think we've seen it a bit less recently but yeah in the past i think you know the way with that is we would just like tell people like you know like, you can't really come back on the call until, like, you've addressed these things. Um, and once you have, you know, we're, we're happy to. But I think that's really the thing. It's like the imbalance between people who want something and people who don't want it. The people who don't want it having to, like, constantly re-justify why. Uh, and, like, not wanting to. Like, it's, you know, like, it's not really their job. So that's one thing I'm, I'm pretty mindful about. Um, you know, I think that, the like, more subtle engineering attacks, you know, say, like, like very like, I don't know, like uh, extreme scenario, like the NSA infiltrates like, you know, a, a core dev team. I think this is where the the, cl- the client diversity also kind of matters because like no client team can like single-handedly push a change unless they kind of convince everybody else, right? Yeah. Um, and and then even if the client teams agreed, then they'd have to convince the community to do that as well. Um and you can imagine stuff where, like, you only need to convince the client teams, right? Like, if it was like some backdoor in a cryptography function, you know, the amount of people running nodes who can actually verify that is, is quite small. Um, but like, if somebody was coming in like shilling, you know, like their BLS twelve library nonstop, and like I don't know, say like the get team was like, oh yeah, we're really on board with that, and like other teams thought something was like fishy about it, it. It it would probably just stall, right? Or at the, or if not, you know, other teams would be like, okay, we'll do this, but like we'll use a different library, and so you kind of mitigate any impacts of of that. Um, and also, like, it's worth noting a bunch of teams have people that disagree with each other on the team, right? Like, so uh, it, it's quite possible that like somebody again say this like this example, somebody tries to put a backdoor into Geth, you know, that the get team might not agree about, you know, do we want to use this library or not, um, and And so I think this is where it's really valuable. Like you don't want to have just one implementation that's guarded by one team, because like if for whatever reason that team got compromised, like, you know, the other teams kind of act as a sanity check. Um, And
0: and that's that's really good. Yeah. So part of the ethos of this whole industry is that it is reflective of what the people want, right? And the nature of open source systems is that you can contribute to them if you think that you have something valuable to contribute. So vet this statement for me. If you have something that you think should go into Ethereum, you can actually get that done. And I'm, and I'm talking about like not you or the client teams. I'm talking about Joe Schmo right. from, you know, the wherever wherever in the world yep. has a really good idea, but he doesn't know you. Yep. He doesn't know Danny Ryan. Yep. He doesn't know any of the client teams, but he has a good idea. Can he actually get that code in there? Or is uh, that is actually updating the code gated to a very small privileged number of people? Right. So
1: I've I've actually we have EIP one which kind of describes how to do changes to Ethereum and I've I've updated it to add a note about this. You know I think the difficulty the difficulty is proportional to two things. One is how big of a change you're trying to introduce. If like you know. Uh, something that happens all the time, for example, is some teams working on like rollups, for example, use a pre-compile and they think the gas cost is too high. And, you know, they come in like we don't necessarily know them. And they're like, look, this gas cost is too high. It would help us a lot if it was cheaper. And we've run some benchmarks and we think it's safe if it's cheaper. So, like, you know, they can come in and like they, they're obviously familiar with Ethereum, like they don't know anything. But like it's a simple change. Mm-hmm. They're able to ra- add a rationale for it. And that's pretty straightforward. If say you want to like change how you know say an idea on the scale of EIP fifteen fifty nine, like you're gonna need a lot of like time and effort and convincing people to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think yeah, like one part is like the difficulty is proportional to how big the change you want to make is, and it's also proportional to like how big Ethereum is, right? Like because you're changing the system not just for yourself but for everybody else, right? So. basically the more Ethereum grows, the harder it is going to be to make big changes because like you just have so many different people that depend on it. Um, So, you know, like can like a random person who knows nothing about like Ethereum come and, you know, make a massive change? Like realistically, no. Can they come, you know, without having like connections and like propose something that's like intelligent and like well-scoped and like be heard and like have it critiqued like 100%. Like we get a ton of those. Um, If you're not sure, you know, you can reach out to me. I I get emails from people that are like, I want to come on all core devs and talk about this. And I'll, I'll try to like, let them know, you know, just like set their expectations. And even if they have an idea, you know, I can tell them like, look, even if this works, this is going to be something that's going to take like a year plus to get done. And like, you know, if, if this is something you want to commit to, I'm happy to help you. And, and like, I'll put you in touch with, you know, people who can review and give you feedback on this. But like, yeah, people should expect that it's not like a trivial thing to come on Ethereum and, and, and change the protocol, and and that's by design.
0: So, Tim, who is an all-core dev? How do you define that?
1: Right, uh, <laughs> hard question. So, I think we use all-core devs to define the call, not like the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I I've tried to like break it down between like client developers, so so the people who you know actually write code into one of these clients, um, and then we have a bunch of. Other folks on the calls were extremely valuable, like researchers, obviously EIP champions. Um, I find it easier to think about it that, like, what the people actually do. I think when people ask this question, they're like asking implicitly, like, who gets to make the decision? Um, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a balance. Like I've I've mentioned this a couple of times already, but like, even for example, this is I'll take like the I don't most like steelman version of this is like Vitalik really wants a change. Vitalik has a list of changes he really wants to see on Ethereum that, like, don't get adopted because, you know, for whatever reason, people don't think they're safe or like they're just not the priority, and like even him like can't like force something through the process and get like everybody to like drop everything they're working on,
0: um, unless they all agree that it's worth Wait. it, right? Quickly, can you just like rattle off a list of things that you know that Vitalik wants that isn't going uh, in? Just a really quick it- list. I don't have the full list, but the one, okay. uh, he talks about a lot is, uh, removing self-destruct. Uh, that's like his,
1: uh, <laughs> one of like the fairly simple, you know, things we could actually do, uh, that has a lot of like kind of ripple effects, right? Mm-hmm. And that's an example where, uh, I think he'd be happy if we like decided like, oh, we're going to remove self-destruct really quickly. Um, and then when we look at this, we're like, well, how the hell is this going to work? Um, and, and nobody else, I guess, you know, by, Nobody else has spent their time like figuring this out, so um I think that's a good example where like you know and 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 there's valid reasons for removing it It helps with a bunch of stateless stuff and whatnot like he doesn't just want this for fun like there's there's a strong rationale for why um you know I guess as a group we just end up having other priorities and and like nobody has made that their number one priority, so even him and I'm not saying like it, it's not gonna happen, but it's like even him can't like get everybody to drop some everything. Yeah. And focus on like the thing, um, and and if you know he might come up with a proposal that's like important enough, but people would have to all make the call, like oh yeah, he's right, and like we should drop everything to work on that, um, and so yeah, when people ask about like you know who has like the power to make these decisions, obviously like the group, the group decides you know what code goes into what hard fork. Uh, we have this concept of rough consensus, so we you know we want people to generally agree. We won't, you know, require like a hundred percent agreement. Like a lot of people will just, you know, sometimes say like they disagree, but not enough to block it. If people have like really strong objections, like it is possible for somebody to like, you know, single-handedly block or like delay something if they have like a sufficiently strong objection to it. Um, but there's no hard and, and fast rule here. Um and then, yeah, even so, if you have consensus amongst all the client teams and, like, some of the folks, like, say, the, the EIP champions or the researchers, you still need the community to adopt the change, right? Like, and you need everybody to upgrade their nodes. And I think we try to be, like, we, we don't want to be into a spot where, like, we just ship a bunch of software and nobody upgrades it. That's actually very confusing. You, like, it's, it's bad and it's a situation we want to avoid. So, like, generally the core developers won't like ship an upgrade that they feel would not get adopted by the community um but but it is a possibility like if if for whatever reason we you know we messed up there like we like misread things and like the community decided this is actually bad you know they don't they don't have to, to upgrade um and yeah so so i think you know obviously it if you want to make changes to ethereum there's like a lot of value in spending time to understand how this process works, and and you know, kind of gaining trust from the people in it, and you know, providing good contributions and whatnot, um, but I don't think there's like anybody who can like single-handedly like change or like derail the process at this point, and and I think that's like really really healthy. Uh, it's it's probably way underrated. Like when. Like if you look at say like the the, the straw or like the, the strawman like arguments against like our governance process and like how uh, you know people will like say again like Vitalik can like influence the entire roadmap and what actually happens I think there's like a massive gap there and like yeah that's that's really
0: really valuable. So in, in phrase differently, would you say like a core dev is somebody that has uh, a good idea? the motivation to actually commit to that good idea the resources in order to prove that that idea is good and then and then like you know is ready to follow through on t- carrying that idea all the way to the very end of its ex- of its execution that person is a core dev yeah 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 and again it's like a fuzzy label right, right. like so uh like that
1: seems generally like a good definition mm-hmm. i i think like what i don't like about this label is it's also like Say you have like a researcher, right? Like who spends, you know, two years coming up with something and they don't actually implement it. Like they're not a core dev in that they don't write code, but they're right. like hugely valuable because mm-hmm. like they they've done like the work. Like, for example, everybody who like worked on the beacon chain spec, but like doesn't write code for it, right. you know. I mean, I don't know, like you could debate whether you call them a core dev or not, but like they're definitely a super critical part of the process. And, you know, I I'd call them like a researcher, but sure. they're involved in the protocol governance for sure.
0: Um Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's a fuzzy label. I'm getting the visions of, um, the Spartacus meme, which is where everyone stands up and they say, I'm a core dev and I'm a core dev and I'm a core dev. So, (laughs) oh yeah, I can, I wrote a tweet that helped the core devs like learn something like, oh, I I wrote uh, the introduction paragraph to the CIP. (laughs) I'm a core dev. I'm a core dev.
1: Yeah. Yes. And like, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to like exclude people from Mm -hmm. it. And I think, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe at some point we'll just stop calling it all core
0: devs altogether and get rid of that problem. That's pretty funny. Um, is Amin Soleimani a core dev? <laughs> I mean, I think um a lot of people like almost dismiss
1: Amin because he of his attitude. He's made like mega important contributions mm-hmm. to Ethereum. Like he's worked on state channels, Moloch now is obviously huge. Um, so you know, I I think like people are are too quick to dismiss Amin. Um, yeah.
0: So, Tim, are you going to just facilitate these core dev operations for, like, the rest of your life? Or what's next on the horizons for Tim? Man, I don't know. Um, I, I
1: think it's really hard in a space that moves so quick as Ethereum to, like, have, like, say, a five-year plan, mm-hmm. right? Like Because, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's impossible to predict. I, you know... I felt like obviously when I joined this, like one of the main things I needed to do was get the merge done. Like that seems like a no brainer, um, you know. Like and and we're working on it. It's the next big thing. Uh, we're also gonna have like the the withdrawals from the Beacon chain won't come in the same upgrade as the merge. They're gonna come a few months after. And like you know. If, if I think of like the merge being done for me, it's probably those two upgrades. Um, there's a bunch of stuff after that I feel really strongly about at the protocol level. Uh, so the most the biggest one is, is stateless. Um, so the, the idea is that the amount of data on Ethereum kind of keeps growing uh, over time as, as more people use it and there's more data stored. Um, but it'd be really nice to have a way to cap like how big a node is uh, for a bunch of technical reasons. Um, but you know, just to, to have a like kind of a, a constant or, or, or a ceiling on the node size. Um, that's something we've been talking about since like 2017, 2018. Um, and that I think after the merge, we have a good shot of like prioritizing um that and like sharding, but sharding happens much more on the consensus layer side. So like the beacon chain teams will, will probably handle sharding for like, you know, 90 plus percent. Um, whereas uh, stateless happens mostly on the execution side. Um so I think that's like another big problem. that like I have a, a I've basically been there since we've started talking about this. I have a good feeling for like what the different trade-offs are, how we can maybe get this done. Um, yeah, I I feel pretty strongly about getting this onto mainnet. I think if we had sharding and proof of stake, and I also felt pretty strongly about EIP fifteen fifty nine, like if with EIP fifteen fifty nine proof of stake and and stateless, I think you know Ethereum could probably go along for ten years without any upgrade and like still be you know, be good. Um, you know, I think there's a bunch more stuff we'll want to do to, to make it even better. But like, yeah, those things just felt to me like the major kind of flaws or like issues with the protocol and and I'd really like to to help fix
0: them. Is your entrepreneurial itch sufficiently scratched right now? I
1: mean, I think, you know, my work is great in that it is extremely self-directed like an entrepreneur. And I think I do have like the ability to like shape things. Mm. You know, like the, the other big part of, of like stuff I like to work on, which uh, is like a bit lower on my priority list, but it's like how do we formalize the governance processes for Ethereum, right? Like, um, And one thing, for example, I think is like a flaw in our process. Like I don't like that we actually rely on these calls every two weeks to make decisions. I, I think it's like a bit, it's not great for like uh, different time zones and like people who can't make the calls. I think some people also like, are not you know most comfortable like going on a call and like talking about stuff like they're more comfortable writing, um. So I I would love it if like we moved to like a mostly async governance process, mm-hmm. and we would still have calls. You know, I obviously we're gonna always need calls to like discuss stuff. There's things that's just higher bandwidth to discuss on on video, um. But like. Another way to phrase this is like, I would be really happy if like the way that I end this goal, this work is like by putting myself out of a job Mm. that you don't need somebody to run those calls every two weeks. Um, And you're still going to need people to facilitate. But like it, it does feel like the amount of context that like myself or Danny needs to have to do this is extremely high. And like, I would love it if, if you were able to like, you know, have a much simpler process where basically anybody say with like a project management background would be able to take in if, if like, for whatever reason I stopped doing it. Um, so I think that's from like a process perspective. Um, I, that's like something that bugs me. And Rick Dudley had a tweet about that. I think a few years ago that stayed with me, he said, you know, if, if you're, if your engineering process, uh, requires genius to work every time you don't have an engineering process, you have an artistic performance. And I'm like, I feel like we're we're not quite an artistic performance on all core devs, but like we are a bit too close to that side for me to be to be comfortable. And I, I really like it if we had something that's a bit more formalized and, and less dependent on like live calls that are run with people with a ton of context. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, once that, yeah, once all that stuff is done, we'll
0: see what I do next. But I feel like I've got it all on my plate for the next couple of years. So if somebody pinned you down and forced you to answer, what would your answer be for a WinMerge? <laughs> I'd say 2022. So that's, that's a good hedge. <laughs> <laughs> the whole year.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and if you if you had to pick you know, a month. Month is hard, right? Yeah, and you, and you, so so the reason picking a month yeah. is hard
1: is because, you know, what I can control is like how much focus, you know, we have on the merge. And I've, that's like my main thing, like making sure we, we keep, you know, the ve- vast majority of our focus on that. Mm-hmm. I think assuming... And and then the the other thing that's hard is like you know we might find like a massive bug at some point and and like right. if if we find that it delays things and it's like it's hard to know by how much but like assuming we didn't find that I think like early next year like sometime in February we, we can probably have the code like done right mm-hmm. uh, again we we might not like that might not happen if if there's like a major issue um but assuming we got that the question is then how quickly does the community how quickly can the community upgrade for the merge and this is like a bit hard because the merge is like a really different upgrade it's not just you you update your node and that's it right like if you're a validator you're going to need to run an execution client as well if you're like mm-hmm. you know coinbase or like binance whatever running nodes you're going to need to like kind of change your setup and we We want to make sure that the community has time for that. Like we don't want like the merge to work at like the consensus level, but then everything breaks, right? Like all the staking pools break, for example, like that'd be terrible. Um, and so it's hard for me to gauge exactly how much time the community needs. What we've been doing, uh, Trent has been taking the lead on this is having these merge community calls and literally they're kind of we'll share some updates but most of the call is just like answering people like wallet developers infrastructures questions like and and also figuring out like what do we need to do to get this like in an easily in a a good form for you to, to upgrade um so we've had one a month or so ago we have the next one this Friday I think that's a way we can kind of speed run the process where like we don't want to wait till the code is completely finished, just start reaching out to like infrastructure providers. And we want to solve as many of their issues proactively as we can. Um mm-hmm. and then it's like, yeah, so like if the code is done in February and like we need two months, we usually take about two months to deploy an upgrade. That's like, you know, April. But if for whatever reason, like, you know, if Etherscan was like, well, this is completely gonna break things and like we just learned about it at the last second, we'd have to make a call. Like, you know, do we make it three months or do we go with like a broken? And, and I say EtherScan, but like I suspect it would be like all block explorers, right? Like, right. um, and so and so that's why it's hard. Like, I I would be disappointed if we don't get it in like the first half of next year. Um, and I'm doing everything I can to get it, you know, within like as close as possible to the start mm-hmm. of that first half. I I don't think you know, like I I think the code is not going to be done until like January or February. So like, you know, I I think it's unrealistic to expect things like before, you know april -ish or uh, you know late March or something like that if everything went like absolutely perfectly um but yeah then there's like a couple months that it's just unclear how how quickly we can get this out and and I think everybody involved in this kind of prefers safety over like right.
0: shipping it like two weeks earlier. Um. Yeah. So it's, it's a matter of just not only having the code and re- having that just vetted and tested, but also like yeah. watching Coinbase raise their hand and Coinbase says, hey, we're ready to go. Etherscan says, hey, we're ready to go. Yeah. And just like, oh, we get a yeah. gist of like, everyone yeah. kind of says they're ready to go. And so like, I, let's go ahead and do this, I guess. Yeah, basically. And
1: also like we... We, we need to make sure things like mostly don't break. So it's fine if they don't have like perfect support. Like we saw this with 1559, right? Like mm-hmm. MetaMask didn't like support it like right out of the gate. Uh, it took them a couple weeks after. And I don't know, I'm, I'm fine with that. If assuming like it doesn't like lock out users in any way, I'm fine if mm-hmm. like, you know, the protocol upgrades and then like things are maybe a bit like, like sketchy for a week or two just as like infrastructure sets up, but you just don't want to fundamentally break anything, right? You want people to be able to use right. the old version um, and and to have that work. And yeah, so I, I'm not saying we need to wait for like every single like infrastructure provider to be ready, you know, and there's good competitive pressures amongst them. Like for example, you know, if Binance supports it, but not Coinbase, like Coinbase obviously wants to do it. If like, you know, Infera supports it, but not Alchemy, Alchemy wants to do it. So like, I'm, you know, I don't want us to like do kind of central planning here, but I do want to make sure we're not right.
0: completely breaking some major parts of infrastructure. Yeah. Well, Tim, this has been a fantastic lesson as to like what it's like to be working on a client team and also just working very, very close to the heart of Ethereum. If there's one thing that you wish was more common knowledge throughout the broader Ethereum ecosystem, what would that be?
1: Um. Yeah, I, I think that bits I mentioned earlier about like, The process actually being quite decentralized now at the governance level, I think even within the Ethereum system, some people might have like a picture that like, you know, certain folks are able to push stuff or like, you know, to like single handedly veto stuff. And I think, yeah, that's like gone less and less true. And and that's really healthy. Um, Yeah. So that's probably the, the one thing
0: yeah well tim i hear those criticisms and critiques all the time and so uh thank you for coming Great. on and, and producing a show with me where i can actually point people <laughs> to actually direct them yeah. here so uh, that, that this will be a new resource for that awesome awesome tim thanks for coming on thank you for having me cheers